0: Hi everyone, this is Machines and Masterpieces, a podcast that is interested in the intersection of culture, technology, and economics. I am Christoph Spiers, and I'm an Associate Professor of Finance at HEC Paris. My guest today is Josh Fairfield, who is a Professor of Law at Washington and Lee School of Law. Josh's research on digital property, electronic contracts, big data privacy, virtual communities, and cryptocurrencies. In 2017, he published a book called Owned, Property, Privacy, and the New Digital Servedom, in which he studies the rights of owners of digital and smart property, including ebooks and digital music. His latest book, published this year, is called Runaway Technology, Can Law Keep Up? He has also written about the legal underpinnings of NFTs recently, and so I'm very excited to be able to talk to him today. Josh, thanks for taking the time to talk to me. Thanks so
1: much for having me, Christoph.
0: So I really enjoyed reading your 2017 book, Owned. I guess there's some irony in this, but I actually bought your book as an ebook. I bought it on Amazon.
1: <laughs> I bought it on Amazon I
0: put it in the Kindle app on my iPad.
1: You know, my publisher actually wouldn't let me put uh, a note in there saying, by the way, if you bought this as an ebook, I'm so sorry. you don't own it.
0: So, so but maybe for, for people who haven't read the book, so what did I buy exactly? Can I call myself an owner of your book? How would my ownership rights have been different if I would bought a a physical copy of your book?
1: So there's two answers to that question. And I think that the tension between them is really what we're seeing across the board when when farmers in Indiana and Iowa have to hack their own tractors in order to repair them up to questions about who owns NFTs right now. And there's two ways of understanding ownership, right? One is sort of the, the school ground idea of ownership. Like if I'm at a, at a table and I've got a chair, the chair is in some sense mine. I have got to it first, and everybody understands that I have the right to sit in it and use it for now. But in the legal sense, then, there are very complicated sets of laws behind who owns what. And especially with digital and smart property, that common sense idea of it's mine, I own it, really over the past 20 years has been almost erased. And instead, what you own is a license, and it's a very limited license to an ebook or movie. And it can be taken away on a wide range of circumstances for breach of the license agreement in almost under really quite surprising circumstances. So, the, the standard one that people talk about a lot is um, George Orwell's 1984, the book 1984, was erased from people's Kindles when they purchased it. And the reason that it was erased was because there was a dispute between the license holder who had who owned the license to the, the copyright to the book and the service that had posted the ebook to Amazon. And so that fight between people at the top, at this very top level, sort of trickled down and wiped out all the property interests of us poor peasants down below. And really, what the books that I've written are all about is trying to get us back to that first conception of property, that that idea that We all have a pretty good understanding of what it means to buy something, but if I own it, I can use it. I can keep others from using it. I can destroy it if I want to, right? I can display it to others. I can represent myself as the owner. We know the set of rights that we get when we buy something, when we own it, and I'd like to strip out a lot of the legal confusion that's sort of cropped up in the past 20 years.
0: I'll tell another personal story. So the first time I uh, realized myself that I didn't really own the things I had bought is when I moved from France to Belgium a few years ago. I'd bought a couple of TV series in iTunes, I moved, and I was forced to change my country setting in iTunes, and the TV series I had bought were no longer in my iTunes library. I was like, this can't be right. I bought these items, right? And then I contacted the Apple customer service, and they, of course, pointed out that I had agreed to their terms when I switched iTunes stores. So that's when I first realized, well, when, you, when Apple says you're buying something, you may not actually be buying anything, right? Or you, at, le- at least you're not becoming an owner.
1: Yeah, I think they really shouldn't be allowed to use that word. It triggers a sense of instinctual—property I mean, is an intuition. Ownership is an intuition that, that we learn from childhood in society. P- property is how we negotiate for scarce resources between humans. It's a really important social act. And these decisions with licenses, they, they strip all that away underneath it. And these companies are relying on that. They're relying on people paying by prices— for stuff they're really renting. And it's a scam. You wouldn't pay the same prices for it if you were just renting it, if you were just licensing it. And they, they know that, and that's why they use the word buy and sell and all that, all that language that triggers in our minds the sense of, oh, this is mine now, but it's not.
0: But let's do a thought experiment. Let's imagine that Amazon, Amazon would sell your ebook as it is doing today, but next to that it offers a version with all traditional ownership rights that I can take a version that also allows me to take it uh, outside of the Kindle app, I can resell it, but it's priced higher. Do you think that there's a market for that second more expensive book?
1: Absolutely. There's certainly, I mean, among other things, because it's not clear that it's more expensive since you could resell it. And so you'd have to, economically speaking, right, your, the real price to you is the, pri- the purchase price minus the resale price. But beyond that, there's this drive to collect there's this drive to uniqueness. There's this drive to have access to resources without having to ask anyone else, without having the risk of them taking away. They're taken away. There's a shakiness to our access to to everything from news and information to books now our book collections to you know i mean uh, the standard problem of the um of the new millennium is what happens when you break up who gets the itunes collection right there's there's even there's even sort of family law and divorce problems here and this sense of having something that is that's either physical or that has the information characteristics of physicality, like like a non-fungible token, where I can give it to you and then I don't have it anymore. Things like that really trigger our urge to collect and our need to build a relationship with what's ours. You know, Things like this, this wedding ring that's on my finger, that's not just an abstract piece of property that I'd be okay if somebody said, oh, well, you moved to Belgium, therefore you lose access to it, right? We, we build relationships with the things that we surround ourselves with, and to have that be fundamentally shaky on these, on these pretty silly legal principles can really leave people adrift.
0: So one thing you you mentioned almost in passing, but that that struck a note with me is that iTunes and Apple Music and then similar services may have killed the joy of collecting somehow, right? Of, Of the joy of carefully building a music collection. So for a very long time, I bought songs and albums on iTunes, but at some point I was starting to run into troubles when trying to synchronize across different devices and also dragging my library over many successive MacBooks. Then Apple tried to integrate its streaming service into iTunes. And at some point I gave up. I just subscribed to Apple Music, the streaming service. And now I add albums to my library there. But of course, these albums are even less mine than my iTunes purchases once were. And I cannot really call this my music collection. So how do you see this, this a trend towards subscription-based services, where it's even less obvious that you're really owning anything? And so how do you see that development? And is this something that's reversible in your view?
1: Yeah, so it's all the same problem, which is that when the internet came along, we didn't fully understand what it meant that computers do everything by copying. And that hit the movie and music industries like a bomb. Because suddenly, all of the natural copy protection they got by limiting the number of vinyl records, CDs, tapes, whatever, went out the window. Everybody could make infinite copies of their music at the click of a button. And that's where we got all of these bad laws that now over the past 20 years have really grown out of control. And that's what the subscription services are an attempt to solve. People want access to their music, but the companies are really not willing to... They don't like parting with MP3s. They can be that can be copied forward and they lose control of them and then they they can't charge money for them anymore. And so the subscription services have been a solution for that, right? It's got a contained app environment and it's you know the software is completely under their control and you never get a copy of it. All you get is the stuff that's streamed. And so it's the streaming really that is the solution to this copying problem. But the problem can be solved if we have a way of recreating that sense of physicality of a piece of vinyl, right? If we have a way of recreating it so that if I give you my copy of Britney Spears's toxic, you have it now. And I don't then creators can once again, charge for their works and can sell them and can earn a living. And then the various companies that stand in the middle of that process can charge their profits and, and stay in business. So the problem is that the technology to, create digital uniqueness and digital rivalrousness. Rivalrousness being the idea that if I have something, you don't. And if you have something, I don't. That's sort of the opposite of a copy. Right? A copy, I can click a button and everybody has a copy. You have a copy. I have a copy. Everybody who's listening has a copy. But rivalrousness is there's only one copy. And if if I give it to you, I am i don't have it anymore. And under those circumstances, once we can create that, we can recreate collectability. And that's, in fact, what we're seeing. People You know, in one sense, collection of music died because the music industry went the way of the subscription and of the dedicated app. But in the places where we are developing the technology to give people unique scarce digital objects like non-fungible tokens, collectability has exploded. It's always been a real drive online, ever from, from the earliest massively multiplayer online role-playing games. People people collected as if their lives depended on it. They, they loved it. They would display what they'd collected. They'd set up virtual houses and rooms and show their collections. And that urge hasn't gone anywhere. It just was suppressed for about 20 years until we worked out a way of providing what people really wanted, which was a way of saying, this one copy, this one distinct thing is mine, and a way of satisfying the intellectual property creators who were worried that once they released their work into the wild, it was just going to be copied by everybody, and they were never Going to get paid for it again. So I think that the, you're right that the subscription services have killed off the ability to, co- to collect and the joy of collection because there is no ownership, there is no stability. That's something that was driven by the economics of the music industry in the early 2000s, dealing with Napster, Bear Share, LimeWire, and the rest. And this is the end result of it. But I also think that the drive to collect hasn't gone anywhere and in fact has has driven this unbelievable growth in online collectibles in digital collectibles um that has people collecting everything from you know like top shot has people collecting an nft attached to a particularly awesome Basketball play, uh, you know, particularly awesome shot in basketball. And uh, Other people have uh, collections for you know collectible trading card games or uh, collecting cars. NASCAR now is entering the NFT space. So that drive to collect is is there. It was a matter of having the technology to support the industries who were behind it, who were really worried about what would happen if everybody could just make a copy for themselves.
0: Yeah, So let's, let's talk about that technology and the, the future of collecting in a minute, but first I want to pick up on something else you said, which is how already decades ago people were struggling with some of these things in, in the context of online games and virtual worlds, right? So I, I think also in, in, in one of your books, you talk about how some of these issues about property rights go back to some of the earliest online games and virtual environments. So, okay, could you explain that a bit more maybe?
1: So it's the same conflict we've been talking about all this time. In in these virtual environments, people would collect, you know, in a magical world, they would collect a magic sword. In a science fiction world, they would collect valuable metals or spaceships. And humans would immediately start acting as if that were their property. They would buy it. They would sell it for real money. And they would defend it. And they would bring lawsuits about it. They acted in every way as if this was theirs. It had the same problem, though, that our ebooks have, which is if you read the end-user license agreements for these games, which you have to click through and agree on every time you enter the game, you would see these paragraphs saying, essentially, nothing in this game belongs to you. The playground rule version of property, which is the people were buying and trading and selling and fighting over and caring about this stuff diverged really strongly from the legal reality which was when push came to shove nobody owned anything and that served as a way of really as a, as a way of predicting what's this explosion in nfts and this later explosion of collectability because the only difference between those virtual worlds and nfts is that the virtual world you know if i have a magic sword that magic sword is listed in a database maintained by the game creator And they had control over that database, and so they had control over the item because they could just delete it out of my account, or they could move it somewhere else. But with NFTs and with cryptocurrency, the database isn't maintained by any one person and is secured by game theory and by cryptography. And so there's no longer an entity that can sort of do that. And that, I think, has – but that's the only shift. Otherwise, the instinct is the same. There's an electronic artifact. It's rare it's desirable within a community that's given it meaning. If I if I've got the you know the sword of he- the sword of heaven and everybody else wants it and can see how cool it looks, then all of the value of of having my avatar have that and show it off to other people and use it to kill the dragon. All of those social indicia of property are there and they trigger all of the social responses that we have toward property. So they are er- served as early test beds, proving up the concept that people want intangible property, not, not intellectual property, intangible digital property. And they're willing to pay for it and they're willing to and they want to treat it as if it's theirs. It got tangled up in exactly the same problem of licenses that all of us see with our movies, books, music, and the rest of it.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Now, now today, you you have these blockchain-based systems, so you have the technology. And one thing I really liked about reading your 2017 book in 2021 is that you explained already four years ago, four or five years ago, how blockchain-based systems could really restore property rights for digital property, right? And, and this year, we've seen this explosion of NFTs. Now, it's clear to me how NFTs or blockchain-based systems can help create markets for ownership and collectibles, right? That derive some of their value from their scarcity, like items from virtual worlds or, or digital art. Or It's not so clear to me how this would work for books or songs, right? So could you really imagine like a blockchain-based system to replace like current ways of distributing ebooks books or, or songs
1: digitally? I think you certainly can. You have to again this tension between ordinary property and intellectual property really really does pop up and you see that even in the most famous examples of nfts which have been the art market which have commanded you know some of these art sales have commanded you know 69 million dollars was a sale of an nft made by by um, artist beeple and the nft in that sense is a loose collection of a couple of things there's a token which is an entry on a database on a blockchain And there's also the intellectual property of the artwork itself. And in one sense, just by selling the token, which is associated with the artwork, we we talk about that as buying the digital artwork. But if you were to click on the artwork, if you could just Google Beeple $69 million NFT, you'll see a picture of it. And if you right click on it, you can make your own copy of it. So it doesn't solve the copying problem.
0: Oh, but isn't that exactly why? why it would work for the art market because in any case in the art market people are not paying for enjoying the item but for the status or the for the
1: status right for the association yeah association Well, well,
0: well for music or books people are probably paying for it to actually enjoy the music or the book
1: exactly so there's two answers right sometimes there are special books and there are special movies so we've already seen this with nfts for a special album or a special limited run and that there that that associational that status connection can be a part of it i mean i'm thinking here of uh, the once upon a time in shaolin this the one copy of that album that was made and the sort of the auction over status of owning the single copy of the album that can still work but then i want to answer your second question sort of in that which is well fine but what about like all, all of the rest of us who just have one copy you know we just want a copy of the song not because there's some expressive or associational value or because we're going to get a newspaper write up about how we own the song right there there it does take some some more complicated doing because what you don't want to do is you want to leverage the uniqueness of the nft the rivalrousness of the nft so that if you make a hundred thousand copies of the nft you want to be fairly certain that there are only a hundred thousand copies of the music right You don't want just people copying it out. One thing you can do is you can combine the streaming model that we talked about earlier with an NFT model. So you can have the NFT serve as essentially a key to then have the absolute right to stream it from a location where it's kept. And then that NFT can be fully traded, can be given to anybody else, and we don't have time to go into all the complex copyright law that makes that a viable option but needless to say courts got very concerned about models um there were there were businesses um redigi was a company uh, about 10 years ago that tried to create a market to try to propertize music to try to let you sell your used mp3s and they got shut down because Computers operate by copying. And every time I would sell you, send you my copy of a used MP3, even if I deleted my own copy, I was still making a copy. You got a copy and I had my copy. And even if I in good faith deleted my copy, it was still operating by copying. And so the court said that violated the copy right. This hybrid streaming model wouldn't do that because you would just have the music living in one place. The token would be traded around, and whoever had the token would have the ability to play the music. So there's ways of, of tying all of this together that gives us the rivalrousness, that gives us the scarcity component of physical objects without triggering the internet's problem of anytime you've got a file, everybody can just copy it infinitely but that's quite different as you point out from the other way of doing it which is there are special copies of something sometimes you know just like artists right there are sometimes a limited run of editions of a painting and those are you know signed and those matter and then the museum gift shop has you know thousands more but those aren't the important copies and we can now do that kind of model in these ways
0: yeah so today's nfts are more about like the special copies, let's say, right? And then I think in the art market, we've seen this explosion of NFTs. And so I think in your book of four years ago, you don't mention NFTs explicitly or or not as such, right? I don't even know if the term then even existed, to be honest. Right,
1: it came out, it sort of really started with crypto in 2017. But I will say, like I I called it, um, I wrote an article in 2015 about how you could use cryptocurrency to create deeds for tokens that were not the same as every other token. If only I'd used the word NFT (laughs) then.
0: <laughs> so is this basically what you had in mind if you look at the nfts that 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 have commanded the highest prices over the last few months is, is this exactly what you had in mind or are they different from what you had in mind and so maybe related to that so if you look at the nfts that trade for the highest prices today do you see any issues with those like the underlying contracts right so or or do you think this is this, these are really uh, like perfect uh, types of instruments
1: i think there are some huge problems with it. I'll go right back to the first thing I said. When we own something, when we buy something, we get a set of playground intuitions about what it means to own. And when those are violated, especially when people have paid millions and millions of dollars for something, uh, it really creates a disturbance. And, And the law here needs to align with people's intuitions about what it is they get when they're buying something. And I'll give you an example. Here, yet again, there's this tension between intellectual property and personal property. So a lot of people who pay for these high-end NFTs, what are they paying for? Well, if you if you read the newspaper articles, they're paying for a piece of art, but they're not. They're paying for a unique cryptographic entry on a database ledger that assigns to an account that's under their control a specific cryptographic hash entry.
0: But maybe ba- buyers know that, right? Uh, maybe the buyers are aware of this. Maybe the average reader of the newspaper isn't really aware of this, but I guess... The, the buyer the 69 million people knows what he's buying
1: sure except that many of the people who buy these things don't look under the hood and notice that so people doesn't have specific license and terms and conditions that constrain the use of that artwork but many of the others do so axia infinity for example which is a common collectible trading card game much like the pokemon universe of collecting monsters and having them fight axia lets you do that but the but the creatures are on the blockchain and you don't own the artwork associated with the axia and you you have to you're limited on the upside value that you can realize on the axia you can't commercialize if your axia becomes incredibly famous you can't commercialize that without a specific separate license. The intellectual property licenses to the art still impose significant constraints on your use of it in a way that's very different from if you had bought, say, if you bought a dog and then that dog turned out to be a show-winning prize dog. You're the owner of it, and the upside gain that you can realize by putting your famous dog in commercials or whatever isn't limited by some other license. So, And I think these license conditions are quite different in every single form of an NFT. The person who mints them sets these intellectual property licenses that are attached to the IP side of the NFT. People don't know what are in them. And then there are also sometimes restrictions placed within the smart contract itself that generates the NFT. Here's one that sometimes people are caught by surprise by. Sometimes NFTs, every time they are resold in the future, kick back a portion of that resale to the original minter of the nft that's not something we're used to with property that we ordinarily buy and sell if i buy a car i don't think that i have to pay honda a portion of the resale value every time i sell that car onward um forward like that so i think that it can become the case that people could learn these things look under the hood when it does though those are transaction costs that raises the cost of knowing what it is that you're getting and because they're different for each kind of nft and here we're getting a little bit into property theory but because they're different for each kind of nft you have to engage in that search cost in that cost of taking a look under the hood of doing your due diligence with each nft that you buy whereas property law generally about physical property really constrains that kind of stuff so that you don't have a bunch of strange new rights that attach to property. There's sort of a, a limited set of rights in the, in the civil tradition. That's called the numerous clauses in, in Latin. The number is closed, the limited, the limited set of property rights that you can have. That limits, that limits the information costs of figuring out what it is you're buying when you're looking at buying something. So to me, I think that. People will get used to some of these things. I also think we're going to see strong standardization at the high end of these NFTs because I don't think buyers are going to put up with not really knowing what it is they're buying and in fact, that having that change after they bought it, which again, is a real possibility. You can rewrite the intellectual property license after the fact. And I think that the stability that people are looking for with NFTs um, isn't going gonna, isn't gonna to stand for these sort of shifting and hidden intellectual property license conditions.
0: The fact that many of these NFTs kick back money to the original creator or minter, I think many people see that as a good thing, right? In a way, it reflects resale royalties that most in Europe uh, we've been trying to implement, right? In a way, it, it, it sort of makes sure that the original creator or original artist is also compensated for the fact that his or her work is increasing in value. So, do, do you really see that as something problematic?
1: I see it as something that costs information if it's not standardized. I know that's not a, a satisfying answer. If it's standardized, if it becomes a well-known version of an NFT, if this, you know, if we've got nft a nft b and nft c right so there's a limited number of nfts and somebody says this is an nft c and what that means is every time it's resold then the portion kicks back to the creator popular forms of exchanging value like that you know are really useful and as long as everybody knows what's going on and it's there up top i don't see any difficulty with it the problem is is if we've got nft you know a b c d e through z and then one two three up to a hundred thousand like we've got if we've got millions of different types then people don't know what they're getting when they buy so i do think there's a strong there's a strong possibility that this royalties model of nft resale will be popular enough that we could standardize it and have it be okay but again In any time it's catching people by surprise because there are just so many different forms of these things that you'd have to essentially hire a lawyer to do due diligence before you bought your NFT. Um, That's where I begin to see the problems.
0: Do you think that this is um, an area where regulators or legislators will step in soon, right? So, will there be some kind of regulation or legislation in Europe or the US that will say, okay, if you future NFTs, if you mint mint NFTs, this should be the contract, or you cannot have such conditions, or you have to have these conditions?
1: Right, I think that there's already law. This is maybe the subject of my second book, Runaway Technology, Can Law Keep Up? A lot of people think that law can't keep up with technology. I think it can, because we reason by analogy. And the key thing about technology is that often we use technology to do the same thing that we've been doing all along. So it's a grim example, but the law of murder is going to be the same whether I do it with a brick or with a sword or with a gun or with a lightsaber. The technology changing doesn't change the law and what's fascinating about nfts is that they are such a fundamental human thing the urge to collect scarce and rivalrous objects the the chase after rareness the status component of it is so fundamentally human it's so recognizable what we're doing and in that sense the law is already here i mean courts apply the law of theft an nft like if you steal an nft you you have committed theft if you defraud somebody out of an nft you've committed fraud if you if you've taken away an nft you have to give it back right though that law is already there and then all of the other ways in which we've used cryptocurrency are also really human functions like paying for things well okay in the united states the financial crimes enforcement network fincen automatically said what well, yes of course if you're going to be using if you're going to be using cryptocurrency like money then the regulations that cover money apply and the securities and exchange commission said if you're going to use cryptocurrency to start up your business through these ICOs initial coin offerings then of course the law of securities applies i think a lot of people were expecting the crypto space to be unregulated and then may, like unregulated and then maybe kind of under-regulated for a long period of time because, one, all of this stuff is on a blockchain and there's, nobody, there's no one person who's responsible for it. And then, two, because it was a new technology and sometimes there's a lag. What they didn't realize is this technology is so fundamentally human. All that law is already in place and courts are just applying it. I'll give you a, an easy example. Let's say you buy a valuable NFT and you die. Does it pass on to your heirs? The answer, yes absolutely it does and no court even broke a sweat with that question
0: okay it's good to know that if i die the nfts go to my children uh. so uh final question mate do you collect anything yourself
1: a lot of game stuff i pl- i'm an avid 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 gamer so i played world of warcraft for many 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 years more than i would care to admit and um, was an avid collector within that game and other games. Now the one that my brothers and I have been playing a whole lot is Valheim. Um, and indeed, as one always does, we've built a, a Viking hall and the trophies of our triumphs line the walls of the hall. We've gone all over the, all over the world and, and collected things and love to show off what we built uh, to people who come and visit. So I'm, I'm, as, I'm as susceptible to, to this urge as anybody else.
0: Okay, make sure you protect your Viking hole
1: well. That's right. That's right.